Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Jonah Goldberg, host of Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to check out all the free stuff, including our, you know, a list of all of our podcasts and our um, free newsletters and our web-only content. And if you're so moved, you can actually sign up to become a paid member of the community, which would be great. So go to thedispatch.com, where you can find out how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. And today's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by Tommy John. More about our friends at Tommy John in a bit. Okay, so full disclosure, I am friggin' exhausted. And I just concluded an episode of Glop that I just recorded, and it was uh, pretty gloomy. So I'm going to try and shake off the gloom a little bit. But maybe since it's just fresh in my head, I can start with a point I made there. Um um, one of the, just the weird things, I know people still on my ass about, you know, not making such a big deal about media criticism anymore. And I've been trying to put my finger on one of the problems or one of the reasons why it bothers me so much that people are so obsessed with it. And I think the, the, you know, the Jacobin uprising at the New York times from the left helps kind of put it in some perspective that was missing. I mean, I, I still hold to all the other stuff I've said about why, you know, pointing to how bad the New York times is, isn't an excuse for things that Donald Trump does, but I've said my fill about all that, you know, part of the problem is, is that we live in this time where all of the major institutions in life, but particularly media institutions are shrinking in importance. Um, the New York Times, in terms of being a cultural trendsetter and powerhouse, is a pale imitation of what it once was. It's, yeah, it's got a lot of subscribers and all of that kind of stuff, but it just simply doesn't have the cultural heft that it once had with ordinary Americans and with elites. And some of this has to do with, well, a lot of it has to do with structural reasons. You know, the internet has basically flattened um, the landscape of the media. You know, it, it, this is something that we've discovered very early on, you know, when I was starting up National Review Online, is that just the startup costs of starting a website are so low. And so you can have, you know, one reader or another reader or someone on the internet, or whatever, just go from one website to another. And 
you don't know what's sort of behind the screen. You know, the New York Times has a fancy website. And you don't necessarily know, though, that it's got thousands of people working on stuff behind the scenes. If you go to another website that looks good, you may not know that there are like two people back there. So the, in a way, the web kind of flattens and masks the depth of institutions and makes them seem um, at sort of an equal height in a certain way. And in the early days of the internet, this was a real advantage for NRO because in that flattened environment, the the thing that was most important was your brand, right? If you were an established household name, you were a name brand, in the wild west of the early internet, you knew who, you know, it, it was a tell, it was a good housekeeping seal of approval to tell um, what was respectable and what wasn't. And, you know, so in those early days, a lot of people knew who William F. Buckley was. They knew what National Review was. You know, they'd heard of it. It was in... Woody Allen movies. And it was, you know, it was, and William F. Buckley had the longest running television show in American history up until the time it ended and then meet the press inherited the title, I believe. But, um, you know, you know, Robin Williams does a William F. Buckley impersonation in, uh, Aladdin. Um, it had cultural resonance and that made it just simply more trustworthy or authoritative. And, um, the problem is that, that that sort of thing, I'm not saying that national review isn't as good anymore or anything and that kind of stuff. I, I'm just saying that the, the market has, is, has evolved and people go more and more to find the stuff that they want to read rather than the stuff that they think that they need to read. And it just changes that dynamic. And the same thing happens to places like the New York times and the Washington post and lots of newspapers. But another structural reason that people don't talk about very much is, you know, when I used to make, you know, arguments about liberal media bias, one of the main arguments was that the New York Times was basically the pace setter for almost every newspaper, major newspaper in the country. That all of these other newspapers, they looked to the New York Times for direction. Like, how are we going to cover something? What is a big story? What isn't a big story? Um, how outraged we be about that, about this or that or whatever. And back in the days where you had a robust and thriving newspaper industry in this country, that really mattered. Um, it amplified the New York Times' messaging and, um, and, and priorities in enormous ways. Uh, we just don't have a lot of newspapers left in this country. And the ones that do exist are, for the most part, shells of what, you know, shells of what they once were. They're pale imitations of what they once were. When my dad first came to Washington, you know, the newspaper that in the region that everyone was envious of in terms of its foreign correspondence, and my dad did a lot of international stuff, um, was the Baltimore Sun. The Baltimore Sun had like five or six foreign bureaus, you know, back in the day. Um, and you had, anyway, so you had and people got their news and information from newspapers. And so if you are the leader of the pack that sets the tone and tenor for the rest of the media, um, you have a huge influence outside of just the hugely important media market in New York. The whole landscape is different now. And the New York Times, like virtually every single other major media outlet I can think of, um, is... Uh, trying to provide stuff that 
its readers want to get. It doesn't mean the New York Times does is a bad newspaper. It's not a bad newspaper. It makes a lot of bad decisions, and I disagree, and it's biased. I believe that all my life, and I will continue to believe that, and I think it is so incandescently obvious now that it really just gets annoying to debate. In fact, this is something I wrote, I don't know, 20 years ago or something like that, and I've been making this point for years. You know, the annoying thing about the whole topic of liberal media bias isn't that it exists, because I actually can forgive media outlets for being biased, particularly if they're open about it. But, you know, even if it's, you know, like and, and people forget that the, the, the United States is something of an outlier in Western countries when it comes to media in the first place, starting with the telegraph and then really radio and television, Americans, American journalism got obsessed with this idea of objectivity. There was this idea that thanks to technology, you could take out the interpretation from the correspondent and provide a sort of you are there sense of what was really happening. The instantaneity of, of telegraph, radio, and then TV. You know, if you just put a camera on something, you don't have to rely on some journalist's interpretation of events. You can see it for yourself. The problem is that, that was never true. You know, I mean, just look at things like the Rodney King video, which gave one sense and then when to the public. And then when the full video was shown to a jury, it gave a somewhat different sense. You know, video, as we know, just look at the Covington thing. Covington high school kids can lie and be deceptive. Um, but anyway, America went through this long, you know, sort of parenthesis in American history where major media outlets pretended that they are worked on the presumption that they were objective, that they were, you know, just telling you the facts without any bias or favor or anything like that. You know, New York Times slogan was all the news that's fit to print. Um, Don Hewitt, who was the mastermind of 60 Minutes and the CBS Evening News, used to call the anchor position as basically invented by Walter Cronkite as the voice of God. And remember how Walter Cronkite, for you olds out there, Walter Cronkite used to end his broadcast um, every night by saying, and that's the way it is. Not, that's the way we think things are going, or that's our perspective, or that's the stuff that we think that you need to know, but it was sort of this ontological, epistemological declaration of absolute reality. That's the way it is, which you know, is, you know, makes me want to bust out my Heidegger. Um, and it was always a myth. Doesn't mean there wasn't good journalism being done, but the mainstream media, um, back when there was a mainstream was, you know, incontrovertibly left-leaning. And so my problem with it was never, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy to criticize liberal bias, but the thing that always annoyed me was the denial of it. You know, Dan Rather would always say the greatest myth in American life is this, this idea that the media is biased. He would get all, you know, high dudgeony and, you know, outraged at the mere suggestion there was any bias in what he was doing. And this was obviously before he climbed up the jackass tree and hit every branch on the way down. Um, but, you know, you just look at Dan Rather's career, it was obviously the case that he was biased. Always the case that he was biased. Daniel Shore at CBS Evening News um, gave a report 
where he said that Barry Goldwater's, this is back when he was the foreign correspondent for CBS Evening News. He said that the foreign correspondent, he said that, that, that Barry Goldwater's planned vacation in Europe was really a secret clandestine effort to link up with essentially neo-Nazi groups in Hitler's stomping ground to coordinate the fall campaign. Um, and there's a really fascinating kind of backstory to all of it. But at the end of the day, that was one of the few examples of where a conservative politician actually sued. And I believe, I believe that Goldwater won that suit. But that was the kind of thing that you could get away with saying in a lot of these places. And, and it's a lot of stuff that the New York Times did. Anyway, the thing was that they would deny it. And I always, I always likened it to, um, you know, that feeling, you, uh, that feeling of rage you get when your roommate drinks your last beer, like in college or something. And you don't really care. You don't want the beer, but you know, you're just annoyed by it. And you're like, dude, you just drank my last beer. And your roommate says, no, I didn't. And you're like, yes, you did. Just, just admit it. It's okay. I don't really care, but just admit that you drank the beer. And he's like, I didn't, I didn't drink the beer. I didn't drink your beer. And you're like, dude, it's in your freaking hand. Just admit it. Just say the words, just say it. And then you start turning into like Sam Kinison in back to school, yelling at Rodney Dangerfield, say it, say it. You know, it's just this incredibly frustrating thing when people would deny the obvious and it, it, it makes you feel like they think you're an idiot. And I get into these arguments to this day with lots of people lots of mainstream journalists who really still roll their eyes at the idea that there's any bias in the media, um, that there's, that there's any leftward tilt in the media. I got into a little bit of a snippy thing with my editor at the LA times about this column I wrote at the beginning of the week about Mitt Romney, um, and how he was so badly treated by the media. And, you know, she, and she made some perfectly fine points pushing back on certain things and all of that. But there is just this thing out there among elite journalists that they, don't believe it. And what's interesting about this moment is that's actually starting to change. Um, they still won't be honest about it, but what is happening at places like the New York times is, um, and in lots of other places, including higher education, um, is this idea that Ross Douthat gets at in his column today that traditional notions of liberalism, and I mean by this, I don't mean Democratic Party liberalism, I mean like a liberal society um, uh, or the liberal arts, right? Um, that that kind of stuff is holding back um, the forces of truth and light and justice from being able to exert their will to power and get their due and all of this kind of stuff that um, and you know, the exhibit a was the Tom Cotton op-ed at the New York times, which again, I think was a bad argument. I disagree with it. Um, I don't think it was like an evil or horrific argument. I just think he was wrong for all sorts of reasons. And I think the fact that there's been remarkably little violence in the last few weeks kind of demonstrates that we wouldn't have needed to send in the 101st airborne. Um, but anyway, <coughs> we can talk about that if you like, but although I don't know how you would tell me, given that I'm sitting alone in my basement, um, talking into a microphone, which is really weird. Um, but it was a perfectly acceptable, provocative op-ed to run in the New York times. And the, 
you know, set their heads on fire, get their dresses over their heads, ass over tea kettle freak out that ensued was a really good sign, um, not good and positive, but like good as in illuminating sign that um, the sort of forces of wokeness really don't buy um, the old model of contest marketplace of ideas, contesting points of views, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, this is a problem in a lot of places. I mean, uh, I'm actually pretty friendly with Jeffrey Goldberg, no relation. Um, but I thought what he did with Kevin Williamson was awful. And the story there, as is the story at lots of places um, that I know about, is that basically the the under 30s, um, the, the, the sort of woke youngsters are kind of running the asylum in a lot of these places. And no one wants to cross them. You know, aging baby boomers and insecure Gen Xers, they see these kids and they're, um, and they're terrified of them. And, um, um, and so, but the point I wanted to get at about all this is what bothers me about all the media bias stuff is that it is, as I put it in the Glop podcast, you know, the, the big fights, um, in like games of musical chairs only occur when there are very few chairs left, right? You know, the, no one has huge fights over who gets the next slice of pizza when there's plenty of pizza left. But when the pie shrinks down, um, that's when people get angry. You know, when the, uh, when you start running out of water on the lifeboat, um, you start fighting over who took too big a sip and it's not the right analogy, but I'm struggling to come up with a better one. Because I, what, what seems to be the happening in, lar in large part is that the fights over things like the New York Times um, and what gets sent out over cable news and all of these kinds of things, one of the reasons why they are so intense is kind of because the stakes are so small. And what I mean by that is not that the arguments are, are, aren't important, um, but that um, people are still working from this assumption that what the New York times runs in its op-ed page or what it covers or what it pays attention to has enormous cultural impact. And I just don't think it does. I mean, it, not, certainly not in comparison to the past. Um, we are, um, you know, people are cutting cords. Um, people are not, you know, watching the, certainly not watching the evening news. I mean, I, it, it, I mean, I, I have some personal experience with this stuff. You know, I thought it was going to be this huge thing to become a syndicated columnist. I, um, you know, my dad worked in the syndicated column business. I did not get a syndicated column through him. Um, it was barred from ever offering me one, which is like one of these annoying things about these charges of nepotism and all this kind of stuff is that nepotism has actually hindered me in some important ways, but, um, or the lack of nepotism has, but regardless, uh, but I watched, you know, my dad was in the newspaper business in the syndicated syndication business all of his life. And he always used to say my entire life I've managed decline, but still when I first got this offer to get a syndicated column through Tribune, um, I thought this was going to be great. I thought it was going to like be incredibly lucrative and important and all of these kinds of things. And, it's still basically worth me doing, but um, the rise of the internet may just destroyed the financial incentives in the syndicated column business. 
you know, before the internet, what a syndicate did, just in case you don't know, is it got information from one news source or outlet to another one very far away. Let me put it in simplest, simplistic terms. If you were a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, um, a syndicate would take the column that you wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle and get it into the Buffalo Times Dispatch or whatever the newspaper there is called. Um, there was no other way to, to do that. And they figured out a way to do it quickly and efficiently. And, um, but because of, there was no internet, um, there were competitive pressures that bid up prices for things. So, you know, if you're, if a syndicate salesman went to the Chicago Tribune and said, would you like to have exclusive rights to George Will's column in the Chicago area? Um, the Chicago editor, just got a degree and would say, absolutely. That would be great. How much? And the salesman could say $200 a week. And the editor could say, okay, or he could counter offer, or he could just say that's too rich for my blood. And the salesman wouldn't mind because he could go across the street to another newspaper. But because the, the, because of the long before the what Google and uh, Craigslist uh, and you know and the internet generally did to destroy the economic model of newspapers, cable television was already doing it. It basically was destroying the two or multi newspaper town, and so all of a sudden you go to again this is pre internet um, you go to a town that has only one newspaper. Well, that one newspaper is the only market for you for your George Will column that you're selling. It's, um, it's kind of like a monopsony. And I believe in the, mon and I'll, I'm sure I'll hear from a lot of people if I get this wrong, but I believe a monopsony is um, a situation where there's only one customer and usually it means the, the government. Um, like if, if we didn't sell fighter jets abroad, the federal government would have a monopsony on F-16s because they'd be the only ones buying them. And so anyway, so if you, the same salesman goes to the, the Chicago Tribune when it's the only newspaper in Chicago and says, would you like George Will? And the editor says, absolutely. How much? And the salesman says 200. And the editor says, how about I give you five? And I said, $5. Um, the editor is going to, the, the salesman is going to take the sale because there's no other alternative in that region. And then what you get with the internet is all of a sudden it becomes a commodity. If you're interested in reading George Will's column or Tom Soule's or mine or any of these kinds of things, you don't have to look up the newspaper. You just look up my name and you'll find my column somewhere. Um, and so the role of the syndicate of, of, of bringing information from one place to another is kind of gone. And I don't remember now how I got onto this, but the, the basic point is, is that um, oh, I remember, right? So like, that's sort of part of my experience with, um, I thought I was going to have this unbelievable opportunity to become a syndicated columnist. And like, I'm still glad to have the opportunity. I'm in a lot of newspapers. I do well with it, blah, 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 blah. But it is just not as grandiose a perch as it once was. Um, it, it is no way sufficient for me to pay my mortgage or any of that kind of stuff. And I'm pretty successful at it. Uh, and it's basically, a, it's not quite a rounding error, but it is not the primary source of my income. And 
Um, and something an- analogous, although it still pays really well, is like being a, a anchor of the evening news. I mean, kudos to whoever. I mean, I honestly, I, I guess Lester Holt anchors NBC News, but um, I couldn't even tell. And I guess, I guess Nora O'Donnell, okay, maybe Nora O'Donnell is CBS News, but I'm kind of making my point. I don't know who does ABC News. Um that's just not the prestigious job it once was. I mean, Walter Cronkite, LBJ was terrified of Walter Cronkite. Who's terrified of Lester Holt? Never mind like Stephanie Rule um, or Ari Melber, you know? I mean, it just, it, these things just don't matter as much. Um, and that's true of almost everything in the mainstream media and also, you know, Fox News and all of the rest. I'm not saying that those positions aren't good to have and they're not lucrative and that they're not important in their own way, but they are all relatively less important than they ever were. And yet this sort of cottage industry on both sides, on the left and the right, kind of need, it needs to prop up these things. It's like, it's like some prize fighter needing to go at least three rounds propping up the, you know, his opponent in the ring just so they could hit him again. And this obsession with, with these outlets as if they are controlling the narrative and controlling our lives and all of this kind of stuff, just, you know, there was a time when if the New York Times and the Washington Post didn't cover something important politically, it was very hard to hear about it. Because if they didn't cover it, that probably meant that ABC, CBS, and NBC didn't cover it. And if they didn't cover it, that probably meant that Time and Newsweek didn't cover it. And that was basically the sum total of the national media. And it just doesn't work like that anymore. But there are people who make a nice living just whining about these institutions as if they matter as much. And that's sort of what I see happening with, you know, with, with what's going on at the Times right now is because everything is shrinking, everybody feels like the and everybody's going for a niche audience, the members of that niche really feel like that outlet belongs to them. And when you put Tom Cotton's op-ed in the New York Times, it's like when Napoleon used French churches or German churches as stables. It is just an affront to all that you hold dear. And it feels like it's an insult and it doesn't matter what the content of the column is. It's just unclean um, that you would be transgressing holy ground. Um, I have friends who are, you know, conservatives on MSNBC. And it's amazing, you know, you can bebop and scat all day long about how bad Donald Trump is. And the audience will eat it up and feel validated by it. But the second you say... But by the way, I like the judges he's appointing or um, I'm in favor of, you know, cutting corporate taxes. The, you know, the emails and the tweets flood in. And a lot of the young producers over there are terrified of that stuff. They're very moved by that stuff. And it drives them and it, it drives editorial decisions at a lot of these places. And I think that that's just sort of the world we're in right now is we're um, um, and and. So I, I should add, you know, part of Ra- Ross's argument is that there are what he is calling, I guess he got it from Wesley Yang, this term successor ideologies, which I actually think is a pretty good way of talking about it. 
Um, and the reason why he uses successor ideology is because none of the labels right now on the woke left, whether you call it woke left or campus left or me too, or black lives matter or anti-racism, they don't, none of them or socialism, even none of them capture the full cohort of, um, ideological precepts that are swirling around in the sort of non-liberal or illiberal left these days. And, um, but they're recognizable despite their messiness as something different than the old sort of liberalish order, um, that we've come to understand. And, uh, and so one of the reasons why it is so pernicious for institutions like the Atlantic and which I got to say these days actually does put out a lot of great stuff, but still bad what they did with Kevin, um, or, or the New York times or any of these other, you know, parade of horrible stories about people basically bending the knee to, um, essentially the, the mob, um, is that it just, it, first of all, it's, it's classic appeasement, you know, feeding the alligator one limb at a time kind of stuff. But also because these institutions are so much more fragile and so much more beholden to um, the, the niche audience that they've got, it emboldens these groups to do even more of it. And um, that's a really dangerous thing. Um, I mean, it would have been worse if you know, Saul Alinskyites took over the New York Times in the 1960s. But at the same time, um, we had a lot of other institutions that could sort of shake off that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but if the, this crowd actually does take over the New York Times, it's a much less precious fortification to grab in this culture war, but it would still be terrible if the cancel culture mob types took over, you know, an institution like that. And the more you signal that you're open to being taken over, the more likely you're going to be. And it's a tipping point problem. And I think the right has a similar problem with a sort of successor ideology problem. Um, one of the things that drove me crazy about, you know, the early, the, the 2015 and early 2016 stuff where Breitbart was outrageously and, ir and, ir and, and indefensibly, uh, you know, positioning itself to be the, I think Bannon called it the platform for the alt-right. And when a lot of people on the right who didn't really understand what the alt-right was, were calling for basically a popular front um, arrangement with, with the alt-right. And I mean, I got into this big fight with Hugh Hewitt on the radio um, about all this back in those days where his definition of the alt-right was just completely wrong. And he admitted to it and he, you know, you know, he basically changed his position. But back then, you know, having been at national review and named Goldberg and been subject to the attacks from places like VDARE for years, I, I know these guys, you know, and I know what they stand for and, um, gussing it up and like, you know, prancing around with Milo Yiannopoulos doesn't make, anti-Semitism and racism and white nationalism any more attractive to me. And so, um, but there was a moment there where it seemed like this was trying to be the successor ideology to the right. I don't think it would have succeeded. 
Um, but it scared me how much better they were doing than I once would have predicted. Um, and now there's this inquit group. You know, I wrote a column recently lumping in everybody from Adrian Vermeule um, uh, to the sort of just hardcore MAGA crowd as nationalists. And Vermeule got persnickety about it because he's basically an ultramontane Catholic and not a nationalist, and that's fine. But I was sort of groping at this, this same sort of point about this successor ideology on the right that is no longer uh, deferential to classical liberal notions about free markets or limited government, um, you know, the, the stuff that the first things crowd talking about, you know, reorienting government to, you know, pursue the highest good. And, um, there's no, as Sora put it, there's no alternative in the culture war other than winning it. And you just have to fight through and impose our definition of the highest good on everybody, lest they impose their definition of the highest good on us. Um, this sort of eternal warfare kind of stuff. There are serious people who are making those arguments. Sorb's a serious guy. Vermeule's a serious guy. And there are lots of idiots making these arguments. And um, it is the problem with the, um, the successor ideology stuff on the right is that Donald Trump is ruining it for a lot of them. You know, I mean, the pandemic, as I've said and wrote a bunch of times, pandemic was one of the greatest opportunities of the, of the last hundred years for a socially conservative right to talk about reorienting government towards the highest good and, t- and taking care to protect the most vulnerable at every stage of life and all of these kinds of things. And they couldn't do it because it conflicted with, with, with what Donald Trump wanted to do. And, and all the animating spirits of the successor ideology on the right are wrapped up in Trumpism. And, uh, and it's a real problem. And, but so I just don't know, we won't know until Trump has left the scene, whether the right actually has a real successor ideology to contend with on, 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 on the right or whether or not it was, you know, both amplified and weakened by the role that Donald Trump played in all of this, because, you know, I mean, I, I, I made this prediction very early on in the Trump era when that guy Julius Krein started that uh, Journal of America, not not Journal of American Greatness, but um, American, I can't remember, one of those things that's not American Greatness, but it was supposed to be like a MAGA public interest, a serious scholarly journal and all of this kind of stuff. And, um, and I predicted they're going to have a huge problem because you cannot... It's the same problem that the New Republic had um, at its founding, right? The New Republic was basically founded to be an intellectual fan magazine of Teddy Roosevelt. Um, it, you know, Herbert Crowley, the founder of the New Republic, was a was a total TR stan. The problem was the TR didn't get elected president, and so uh, when Woodrow Wilson, the worst president in American history. Uh, was elected, he had the power, and the New Republic went with it, and they started bending all of their stuff towards Wilson, and it infuriated TR. At one point, he had this great line about, I wish I could have, I wish I had called it up, about how it was a negligible, the New Republic was a negligible tip sheet run by um, two 
emaciated Gentiles and two uncircumcised Jews, something like that. <laughs> um, and this is the dilemma. Either you can stick to a serious, ideologically consistent, intellectually honest line of argument about what policy should be, about what philosophy should be, or you can get essentially corrupted and bend your arguments to fit a politician. And um, under normal presidents, there's always a creative tension there. Um, um, I, you know, I've written, I thought NR got a little too uh, rah-rah for George W. Bush, um, but, and including myself. Because, and part of the reason for that was we were in the middle of a war, and we thought that you know, getting into fights about how dumb it was to create DHS weren't as important as defending you know, a wartime president from, you know, grotesque attacks and all of that. So, but there, there are always those kinds of tensions and, you know, it, and it happens at all ideological outlets, but because Trump is actually not committed to any serious program of ideas other than his own self aggrandizement and glorification, it's much, much more acute. And so I just don't know if, if, and when Trump is gone, how much of that stuff is going to you know, how, how many, how many people are going to, you know, go back to their starting positions and become Reaganites again? If you talk to senators and congressmen on the Hill, a lot of them pine for that and claim that that's what's going to happen. Um, but I'm just not sure. I just don't know. I mean, you got a lot of ambitious people like JD Vance. I shouldn't say JD Vance. A lot of people, ambitious people like, like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, who really think there's a there there to something that is sort of, um, you know, post liberal in some significant way in terms of economics, in terms of national, you know, uh, about free speech and all of these kinds of things. And it's just impossible in this climate to tell how much purchase it has out there. Um, and I just realized I haven't talked at all about what I was supposed to be talking about in all of this. And I don't even know if I satisfied the thing I started talking about. Um, but it reminded me that when I talked about these ideas taking purchase that I need to talk to you about purchasing some Tommy John. Um, look, I'm, you know, it's weird to talk about, you know, if you had told me that when I sort of accidentally stumbled into becoming a pundit years ago, that, um, it would end up with me trying to sell underwear while talking into a microphone on my phone in my basement. Um, I'm not sure I would have believed you, but here we are. And I got to say, I really like Tommy John. I think it's great stuff. Um, as I often say, you know, I am, I may be descended from a desert people, but we like a dry heat and the, um, the summer months are a really great reminder of how much better off you are. If you've got, um, some underwear that is on your side as it were. And, uh, I should also say that we are fast approaching on father's day and that is a great opportunity to pick up some Tommy John underwear. Father's day can be stressful trying to find the perfect gift for dad. Thankfully, Tommy John is the revolutionary underwear and clothing brand that knows comfort is for everyone. Yep. Even your dad. So give him the softest, most breathable base layer he's ever worn. Their new and improved men's underwear is now twice as durable as his current pair, 
and infinitely more luxurious, guaranteed. Plus, Tommy John is offering their best Father's Day deal ever with 25% off site-wide, including easy-to-gift sets that you can order straight from your phone directly to dad's door. Treat dad to a few pairs of Tommy John underwear and the softest, most breathable fabrics he's ever worn. All of Tommy John's layers are built for next level comfort. Whether you're on the hunt for lounge pants, lazy day joggers, or the softest Zoom ready tees and polos you or dad has ever worn, Tommy John has you covered. Remember to get your, your order in before June 17th to ensure that your gift arrives before Father's Day. Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you can get a refund with their best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. So Tommy John is the perfect gift for all dads in your life. Deliver comfort to dad's door with 25% off site-wide at tommyjohn.com slash remnant. That's tommyjohn.com slash remnant for 25% off site-wide. See site for details. Thanks to Tommy John for sponsoring today's episode of the Ruminating Remnant. Okay, so um, let me see how long I've actually gone here. Uh, quite a while. Uh, let me do a little quick recap of G-File-ish stuff. I really didn't mean to talk about media crap for that long. I apologize. Um, where was I going to go? Okay, so... In the Wednesday G-File, which you could have access to if you were a paid member of the Dispatch community, um, I did a kind of a recap of one of my favorite books, this book by Paul Bloom, who I really want to get on the podcast, um, called Just Babies. And one of the fascinating, it's a really fascinating book, very readable. Paul Bloom is this muckety-muck um, psychologist at Yale, um, hugely esteemed. I first learned about him. Um, like through Russ Roberts' podcast years ago, and I started buying his books when I was working on Suicide of the West. And anyway, um, the Just Babies thing is, uh, it's fascinating because this is something that I've been meaning to um, um, talk about on here for a while. Um, if you've had kids, um, one of the first things I think that comes through or excuse me, let me put it another way. Um, if you've had kids, if you've raised children, and you still believe in the idea that they're born into this world a blank slate, I don't know what to do with you. Um, this idea, I mean, there's just, forget all the social science, forget all the psychological literature about how little impact which I, I tend to think is exaggerated in a lot of that literature, how little impact parents have in, in shaping their kid's personality. I think you can shape, just to be clear about this, I think you can have a big impact in shaping your kid's character, but personality is a little different. And I think everybody who's had kids understands that they're bringing some stuff to the table, right? You are not just creating... Um, you know, you're not just creating art on a blank slate, as it were. Um, they bring all sorts of weird programming quirks to the, you know, to the equation from the get-go. And one of the great things about this book, Just Babies, is that 
um, this is all sort of documented that babies come into this world uh, almost instantaneously being um, uh, distrustful of strangers. And they measure who is a stranger in part because they don't see very well when they're born by how they sound, presumably also how they smell, though I don't know. Um, babies come into the world, they imprint on their mothers very quickly and they say, aha, this looks like us. My mommy looks like this. My mommy smells like this. My mommy sounds like this. So people who are more different than this should be distrusted. And um, this is true for white babies. It's true for black babies. It's true for Asian babies. It's true for all babies. We come into this world with a deeply ingrained distrust and even sometimes dislike or fear of the other, of strangers. And that's just part of the factory preset. You know, when you take the baby out of the box, that software is already in there. And so one of the things the parents got to do is train their, you know, is, is work with that software. Because when babies come into this world, they have factory installed software, but they need updates. And that's what civilizations do, starting with parents. And you've heard this spiel from me a million times. It's sort of central to the suicide of the West talk. And, um, and so this, the reason why I wanted to talk about it was in part because um, I think it's just hugely important um, to keep that in mind for a couple of reasons. One, I think this is sort of foundational to conservatism, rightly understood. Um, you know, look, there are a lot of different definitions and there are a lot of different kinds of conservatism. And I don't need to go through all of that again. But, you know, there's temperamental conservatism, there's Ideological conservatism in the Anglo-American context, which is very different from conservatism in the continental European context, never mind the Chinese context or whatever. Um, and then there are different subcategories categories of ideological conservatism in the Anglo-American context, you know, from Toryism to neoconservatism, all the rest. You know, there's all sorts. I, I love all that stuff. And if you want to finger paint with that with me, I'm happy to do it. But there's this central insight, this profoundly conservative insight that says we are built from the crooked timber of humanity, right? That there's, you know, in, in, in Christian theological terms, it's original sin. Um, in sort of social scientific neocon terms, it's just that um, humans are flawed creatures and that we have, we have biases and that, you know, we are hard Hard, hard to sort of rewrite based upon some ideological precept. We are we cannot create new men. You know, there's no no. The Soviets failed with new Soviet man. The Nazis failed with the new Aryan man. Um, and and so that should give you a certain amount of humility about sweeping ideas and skepticism about sweeping ideas to change society, um, you know, wholesale, you got to work with the materials. Like if you're a sculptor, they're, you know, working with granite, there are certain things you can get granite to do. And there are certain things you cannot get granite to do. Um, if you're a painter, there are certain things you can do with paint that you can't do with granite. And there are certain things with granite you can't do with paint. And humanity is built from this crooked timber and there's just only so much you can do with it. And so you should think about, you know, working with the grain of the material, work with the grain of the crooked temper rather than sort of think that you can just impose whatever pattern you want on it. 
So that's part of it. But there's also this real problem that we have in, um, uh, in contemporary life right now. This is, we're living in a very Rousseauian moment. And I'll get more to that in a second. But there's this idea that, you know, um, I listened to this guy on NPR the other day talk about how, um, uh, you know, babies have to be taught to be racist, that we're all born colorblind, which I think he meant both figuratively and literally, which is fine. Um, and I get the idea that you have to teach people how to hate. And, and in a sense, that's true to be sure. But in, a better way of putting it is you have to be taught not only you have to be taught not to hate, but actually more accurate than that is you have to be taught what to hate. I'll be, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, I, you know, I believe in redemption and all that stuff, you know, probably not as much as you know, David French does for some obvious reasons, but you know, I believe, you know, I, I believe in the basic idea of hate the sin, not the sinner. That said, I kind of hate Nazis, right? I hate rapists. I hate people who torture puppies. Um, and, and, and I know this is a semantic thing. I should really hate what they're doing and not them, but yeah, meh, good enough for day work. I, I hate people who do that. There are, the, there are things that we're supposed to hate. You're supposed to hate racism, right? And that's the whole point of this whole thing right now is you can't just be tolerant or neutral or, or polite. You have to hate racism. You have to be anti-racism. And that's fine. I mean, we can have arguments about that another day. But my only point is, is that, you know, hate is one of these things that is sort of in us. It's, it's, you're never going to get hate out of every human heart because that is this emotion that we are all equipped with. And so the, the point isn't to teach people not to hate. It's to teach, teach them to hate the right things. And there is this naive assumption that, that that's not how it actually works. And I think you can get in all sorts of trouble. Anyway, it would be great if every single listener here automatically subscribed are signed up to become a paid member of the dispatch community. And you read the thing because it's been a couple days and I can't do it justice, but I thought it, it turned out pretty good. Um, at least I was surprised by how much people liked it. But what I didn't get into that one, I got into the G file I wrote today that is available for everybody. And um, it's about the, uh, it's about Chaz. I love Chaz. Um, it's, you know, Chaz is the, uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. And frankly, I think, you know, look, I feel, I feel terrible for the people whose businesses are being ruined and for the people whose property values are being ruined. But, you know, uh, Seattle didn't become the hot mess that it is overnight. And a lot of the stuff that we're seeing now took a long time to build up. And if people were if political leaders and business leaders in that city were more responsible and serious people, um, we wouldn't be in the situation, they wouldn't be in the situation that we're in today. Um, you know, is that great line from, uh, Ed Koch when he was, he didn't get reelected for a third term and he was asked if he was ever going to get, um, if he was ever going to run again. And he said, no, the people of New York fired me. And now they must be punished. Well, if the people of Seattle had, if the leadership in Seattle had punished the jackwads who made, you know, so much of downtown Seattle, basically an open air toilet for homeless people for so long, if they had done something about all that kind of stuff, if they had stopped encouraging the, the just the leftward 
you know, implosion of that city, they wouldn't be in this situation. But that doesn't mean I don't feel sympathy for some grocery store owner who's being really screwed by all this. Anyway, that said, I think the whole thing's hilarious. I mean, I really do. I find it very enjoyable. Um, and the basic reason why is I spent an inordinate amount of time working on Suicide of the West. I didn't get into this detail in the G-File. Uh, when I was working on the Suicide of the West, trying to figure out where the state comes from. I read the Fukuyama book about the origins of the state. I read, you know, the Mansur Olson stuff. It's fascinating stuff, really interesting. And basically, there's no clear idea of where the state comes from because what happened, what the best guess, which I, you know, I think Fukuyama has this right, is that while we can't find the first state, what you end up happening, what you end up, what ends up happening is um, one group, tribe, whatever you want to call it, um, in order to defend itself from another group, this is back, you know, prior to or around the time of the agricultural revolution, what it does is uh, one group starts to organize. That's about the time of the agricultural revolution, I guess. Um, one start, one group gets more and more organized to defend it, its, defend itself against the other group. And then the other group, seeing how the other, the first group has a comparative advantage, you know, they've built walls or they have, they train their soldiers with spears or they have disciplined ranks or they, you know, figured out how to feed everybody in ways that they can have something like a standing army, whatever it is. The other group sees that and, and imitates it and slightly improves on what the first group did. And so it's sort of like the reverse of when you're trying to even out the legs on a table and you end up shaving one leg and then you got to shave the other and then you got to shave the other. Instead, it goes the other direction. And each group kind of improves upon the other until you have what looks like the first city-states. And they kind of emerge. There's another theory, which I'm also very sympathetic to, about the stationary bandit, which is this idea that comes from Mansur Olson, that um, one way you could get the first state is... You have a roving, you know, back in the days where you just had villages, you know, uh, to, for want of a less grandiose word for what the original agricultural communities were like. And you'd have roving bandits, sort of like Vikings or, um, you know, these, these nomadic warlords in China, which is what Mansur Olson focuses on. And they would come and raid a village. They'd take all their stuff, you know, as... Uh, um, what do they call it in Blazing Saddles? The number seven? Or maybe it's a number five? I got it! I got it! So, we'll work up a number six on them. Number six? I'm afraid I'm not familiar with that one. Well, that's where we go riding into town. A whopping and a whopping. Every living thing that moves within an inch of its life. Except the women folks, of course. You spare the women? No, we rape the out of them at the number six dance later on. I love Slim Pickens. Um, the the warlords would come in and they would pillage or the Vikings would come in and they would pillage. And eventually it occurs to these roving bandits that being a stationary bandit actually produces more good stuff. And so Olson talks about how one bandit comes and he says, okay, instead of taking all of your stuff, I'll take half your stuff. And that way you can plant a new harvest for next year. This is good for the roving bandit once he becomes stationary because if you just keep 
rating, eventually people are going to stop planting crops. They're not going to fix anything and everything is going to come dilapidated and you're going to get diminishing returns of what you can pillage. But if you help them by only by basically levying a tax, taking a lot of their junk, but not all of it, and then you let them, uh, you know, plant more, grow more, maybe even you defend them from other people and, or maybe you even help them with some irrigation and all the rest, all of a sudden, instead of just being, um, a pillager, you become a king in effect. And, you know, this is sort of gets to Albert J. Knox theory about how all states begin as theft or where one powerful group just exploits another group. Anyway, we can get all that. I find all this stuff fascinating. And so what I love about the, the, the Chaz thing is these guys are starting what they think is an autonomous zone. It's not autonomous. They're still relying on like Seattle's gas and electric. They're still relying on, you know, essentially protection from the state of Washington from all sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and they're still relying on the, the, the surplus from capitalism to sustain them, but whatever they think they've created this autonomous zone, this police free zone. Like in the first 24 hours, some rapper declares himself the new police in the place. And he's like, you know, <clears throat> he's not really a warlord, but it's fun to call him one. And, you know, he's doing the full who controls barter town routine. And even before, Excuse me. Even before that, they set up what's one of the first things that they do is they set up borders. Well, I thought borders were evil, right? I thought, you know, I thought borders were bad. And not only did they set up borders, they set up border walls um, all around the place. And, you know, and the warlord guy, he's walking around with an AK 47 and a sidearm. I thought, you know, guns were bad. I thought that, like, armed police were bad. And, Anyway, so one of the things I love about this is like, this is on a super fast forward. You're watching all of these people discover, oh my gosh, there are certain functions of the state that I've been, you know, ridiculing and denouncing as racist and evil that are actually, what's that word? Necessary. It turns out that you need people to like, first of all, you need borders. You need to police, you know, wrongdoers in your community. Um, and uh, and I, I kind of find it fun, and, and, and in part because I, I wrote about a bunch of this in my first book. Also, you know, the um, this is not a new idea. I mean, all of these, I mean, it's amazing how politically illiterate some of these people are. Um, you have President Trump calling these people anarchists as if that means that he uses anarchists and terrorists almost interchangeably as if anarchists are just interested in looting and pillaging and violence. And you have the anarchists rejecting the label because they think that's what anarchy means too. And I, I poor, you know, Proudhon and, and Emma Goldman, you know, like there used to be this really robust school of anarchy in this country that argued that it wasn't about violence, that it was about, you know, sort of self-regulation and free association and people being empowered to govern their own lives without state control. I mean, and then there was, there was anarchism in the, there's a whole strain of anarchism and Bolshevism. You know, that was the whole part of the whole appeal of the withering away of the state. Um, and they just don't know anything about any of this stuff. And anyway, so it's like 
what but this what the the core idea of what they're trying to do is they're basically trying to reinvent the wheel and they think they can do it better than the last 2000 years of civilization has done it right they they because they're so smart they live in the fierce urgency of now or the fierce asininity of now they think that nobody else has thought of starting over from scratch and doing away with authority and working by compromise and consensus and like literally every 30 years for the last, I don't know, 3,000 years, somebody somewhere has started some commune or kibbutz um, based or, you know, walled into based upon this kind of stuff. I mean, there are variations, obviously, but this is just such an unbelievably old idea. And but the whole point is, is that if you don't know anything about history and you have this sort of Rousseauian notion that, um, Everything that came before you is idiotic or corrupt or evil or based on, you know, sort of some version of original sin in that humans, you know, come into this world noble creatures and are corrupted by society. That, of course, you just act on your instincts and you just do what you want to do. And we all work together and hold hands and sing kumbaya and talk about how if we work our hardest, we can make this the best yearbook ever. Um, of course, we can create a new society from scratch. And it just, it just doesn't work that way. And so I just think it's really funny that these guys are discovering it this quickly. And it would not shock me if by the end of the week, they start creating their own courts, maybe even a jail, if the sausage-spined idiots running Seattle let them keep doing this thing. Um, you know, because that's the way these things go. There's a wonderful book, gosh, Prisoners, Pirates, and Lepers, or something like that, from this guy Robinson at the University of Pennsylvania, who talks about how punishment becomes more important in societies and communities without fully realized systems of law and, um, and jurisprudence and all of that kind of stuff. And he has these examples about how, like, you know, wagon trains were basically mobile independent communities, right? It wasn't like there was any law around. They had to police themselves. And yeah, the stories of these wagon trains where if people didn't do the requisite amount of work, they had to be punished because the whole thing would fall apart if they had, if they weren't. Um, our brains, this is another one of these things that, you know, babies come into this world with is this notion that, you know, bad actions need to be punished. There's this, uh, Lita Cosmides writes about this, about how you know, one of the things in evolutionary psychology that explains both the left parts of the left and the right is that we are wired going back to our days as hunter-gatherers to really dislike two kinds of people. People who get too much, get, get more than their fair share at the top, right? Like the one percenter types who, who may be putting in work, but they who are putting in work, but they're still getting a disproportionate share of the mastodon or whatever than their work would su suggest. Um, and then people who don't work, who still get a share of the mastodon. So it's like the, you know, the, that's why conservatives, you know, particularly like in the Paul Ryan era, like to talk about makers and takers and, you know, people who, you know, this is the stuff that demonizes people on welfare because they're not, you know, because as Phil Graham would put it, put it, you know, there are too many people in the wagon. There are not, a, not enough people outside the wagon pushing. Um, and so that's where the sort of conservative disdain for, um, you know, the 
the the takers comes from. And then the left-wing disdain for the 1% comes from that other part of our brain. And I'm not saying that explains everything. There are all sorts of ideological things going on there too, but it's part of it. And um, anyway, so this Robinson guy points out how, like, if you don't, you know, that, that the less government you have, which can have these clear rules that everybody just knows they can't risk violating, and instead you have a sort of freeform thing where um, people think everything, go- anything goes and they can get away with whatever they want, um, like in a wagon train or in a lifeboat um, or in some forward operating base with soldiers, um, you, the, 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 the rules have to be stricter and clear lines of punishment and discipline need to be more apparent. Otherwise, you just have a total loss of cohesion and people just start pursuing their own selfish interests. And then other people, you have a tragedy of commons and in a, in a sort of a psychological tragedy of the commons. So anyway, I just think it's really funny to watch that this, you know, this, you know, patchouli soaked, you know, woken folk thing out in Seattle is going through these stages so unbelievably quickly. Um, and so it would not shock me, you know, you know, I mean, I kind of want to like let the experiment run out. I want to see how long it takes before they get to the guillotine phase. Um, but anyway, that's what I wrote about today. I don't know if it's any good, but that's what was in my head. And other than that, I know I've gone on too long. I, I need to stop doing this now. Um, I hope I fulfilled my obligations in this. Um, and uh, one last sort of little note. Uh, this week marked the 15th anniversary of my dad's passing. And um, I used to every year post on Father's Day uh, in the corner a link to the eulogy I gave for my dad. Um, it's called The Hop Bird. Um, I don't know particularly why it gives me this kind of satisfaction to have people read it. Um, but, you know, he was a huge part of my life. And I appreciate him. I probably appreciate him more now. I'm almost surely appreciate him more now that he's gone than when he was around. And um, it just makes me feel good that he's remembered because he was such a quirky, weird, great guy. So um, happy Father's Day to everybody. I actually not sure when it is. Maybe there's another one of these before then, but I figured I would get it out of the way. My dad would be amused to know that it came up um it came foremost to mind when i was reading an ad about underwear so anyway with that i will see you next time sure.